One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to The Real Story with me, Rithula Shah. And this week, I've come to St George's, University of London, a hospital that has a very special connection with this week's topic. We're asking if the world's going backwards in the battle against deadly but preventable infectious diseases. A newly released survey of public attitudes towards health and science suggests that while there's a high degree of confidence in vaccines globally, the figure isn't consistent. So, for example, in northern and southern Europe, about 70% of people think vaccines are safe. But that figure falls to just 50% in eastern Europe. It was the biggest such survey in the world, getting opinion from more than 140,000 people. And half the people questioned said they knew very little about the science behind vaccines. And many said they feel excluded from the benefits of science. So how much of a challenge is that for the medical and scientific community? Well, in a moment, I'll introduce you to the panel and we'll discuss those findings a bit more. But first, let me head up to the library here. So I've come upstairs to the library and I'm standing in front of an exhibit, which is essentially the skin of a cow. And I'm here with Professor Julian Ma. Professor Ma, what are we looking at? So this is Blossom the Cow. And um, it's famous because it was a cow that was owned by Edward Jenner and reputedly the source of the first vaccination that he gave against smallpox. So tell us about that experiment and why it matters so much. What Edward Jenner saw that there was a population, um, milkmaids, who just didn't seem to get smallpox, but they seemed to get a lesser form of the disease called cowpox. And so his experiment was to take a sample from a cowpox lesion and give it to somebody, and then challenge them, a young child, actually, the son of his gardener, in fact, and then challenge them later with smallpox. And the great success was the child survived and was protected against smallpox. And that led to uh, the whole field of vaccination. And just to be clear, I mean, this is Mm. the story that I certainly learned at school and many other people will have, Mm. but variolation, that's something that's happened all over the world. Yes, so variolation was the practice of taking the real live virus and trying to give it in small doses that wouldn't cause full-blown disease. But it was very dangerous and very difficult to get right. So... You have Jenna's breakthrough and you have a huge amount of work that then begins to be done Mm. on vaccinations. How quickly did it begin to change health for for vast populations? It took some time to pick up. Then I think people did start to see it. And Jenna actually very rapidly became famous around the world. And he was um, fated by Napoleon Bonaparte, by um, American presidents, you know, really making a difference to human health. And I think if you look in the bigger picture, it was only just over 200 years later that this terrible disease was eradicated from the the globe. You're head of the Institute for Infection and Immunity Mm. here. How disturbed are you by the fact that there are many people, it appears, from the survey we've seen this week, who appear to be questioning this science? Mm. Well, I mean, it is disturbing because I think everybody believes that vaccination is the most effective way we have of controlling disease. And in fact, 100 years ago, you and I would not be standing here because I would almost certainly have died from an infectious disease. And our life expectancy in those 100 years has doubled from around 50 to around 40 to around 90 now, simply because we've been able to control infections through vaccination and through antibiotics. Do you think we've simply forgotten the painful lessons of the past? Absolutely. I mean, when was the last time you heard of someone quite young in the UK dying of an infectious disease? 
But yet, when I was a child, we used to see patients who had suffered polio as a child in the streets. You know, we were aware of smallpox. We all got smallpox vaccinations. So I think we've forgotten how bad infectious diseases are. Looking at uh, Blossom here, mm. complete with her horns mm. and uh, just almost furry nose, she's still there as a reminder of that breakthrough. But of course, when Jenna made that breakthrough, there were plenty of naysayers, plenty of people mm. who questioned what he was doing. Mm. How did he deal with that? How did he overcome those doubters? I think it was through the force of his invention, basically. I, you know, I think people very rapidly realised the benefits that, that came from uh, immunisation. Now, I mean, Jenna wasn't wasn't a saint. He, he made a lot of money from vaccination. But the one thing that always impresses me is that um, he also opened up a free clinic to give the poor a vaccination against smallpox as well. And if you go and visit his house in uh, Gloucester, you'll see his temple of vaccine, he called it, uh, at the back of his garden, where he used to have an open clinic for locals. Professor Ma, thank you very much. Now let's go back to the studio and meet our guests. And here we are, by the magic of radio, with me in New York, Anna Merlin, the senior reporter at Geo Media and the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. She's covered the anti-vax or vaccine hesitancy movement in the US for years. In Houston, Texas, Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. He's a paediatrician and also a policy fellow at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. He's also the author of Vaccine didn't cause Rachel's autism, a book about his daughter. And with me here in our studio in London, Emily Karafilakis, research fellow for the Vaccine Confidence Project at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Welcome to you all. I want to begin by asking for a relatively brief answer because I think we'll unpack lots of this as we go along. Uh, to one really important question, this week's Welcome Global Monitor, it's the world's biggest survey of political attitudes to health and science, it showed that people living in high-income countries have the lowest confidence in vaccines. Is this something that worries you? Emily? I think there is certainly something to, to be concerned about. I mean, we know that actually the majority of people do believe that vaccines are, are safe and effective, but to have certain populations in specific regions in the world that are more and more hesitant, that can can actually cause a lot of problems. Peter? Well, we know it's a big issue because right now we have uh, measles all over Europe, especially southern Europe and eastern Europe, 80,000 measles cases last year, and it looks like 2019 will be even worse. And then we've got a similar problem now in the United States where for the first time in decades, we've had more than a thousand cases. So what we're now seeing is that erosion vaccine confidence is producing significant declines in vaccination coverage. And now we're seeing the return of ancient infections. So I'm very concerned. Uh, what about you, Anna? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing here is the proof that misinformation can damage public health. You know, there are all these reasons why vaccine hesitancy is increasing, but the main one really is an incredibly successful misinformation campaign about the dangers of the MMR vaccine. And so far, at least, we haven't figured out a really good way to counter this misinformation. And as Peter and Emily both said, it is clearly working and having a devastating impact on a lot of regions of the world. So you're all concerned. There's one really important thing that I just want to sort of make clear at the beginning of this. Why do the numbers of people getting vaccinated matter so much, this idea of herd immunity? Peter? 
Well, it's because uh, some of these diseases are highly contagious. So, for instance, measles is one of the most contagious childhood infections we know about. If a single individual gets measles, on average, another 12 to 18 individuals will also get it, typically infants under the age of 12 months, not yet old enough to get vaccinated. So unless you've covered 90 to 95% of the population with vaccinations, you're going to see measles outbreaks. And Anna, just very briefly then, it's not necessarily necessarily the absolute numbers that are going down everywhere. They may be in some places, but it is about these perhaps pockets of people who are choosing to rethink their attitude towards vaccinations. Well, yeah, and it's about the way that those small pockets of people influence overall public health. You'll find among those small groups of people real skepticism about the idea of things like herd immunity, about the idea that any of their choices that they make for themselves or their children impact other people, but they do. Right. So we've established some of the parameters of this discussion. We've heard some reasons why perhaps we should be vaccinated. But let's hear from the other side, from those who are vaccine hesitant. This, as I think we'll discover, covers quite a wide range of people, from some who may be doubtful about certain vaccinations to, at the other end, those who reject the entire science. Michelle Goldstein describes herself as a holistic health professional. She lives in the United States and has three children. She's mistrustful of much of the medical establishment, including the CDC, which is the US Centre for Disease Control and Protection, which calls itself the nation's health protection agency. She told me why she rejects vaccines. Basically, what happened is that um, my two daughters received the HPV vaccination. And after that vaccination, my youngest daughter became extremely, extremely ill with Crohn's disease. It was extremely debilitating for her. She experienced multiple hospitalizations, missed Months of school had to be homeschooled. You know, it's been a terrible um, journey trying to get her well. But what happened was when we got that diagnosis, she was only 11 years old. We immediately began searching into the world of alternative medicine, which we didn't know anything about, but I'm a fighter. So we didn't know, but we just started searching. We consulted with about 12 different alternative physicians in the course, you know, of of a few years. What may surprise some people is that your daughter obviously has had a serious condition. But why did you conclude that it was the vaccination that had caused that condition? Couldn't she have got that anyway? Crohn's disease is not uncommon. Absolutely. And that wasn't my initial conclusion. So one of the physicians that we that we consulted with was an expert in treating autism. And she was the first and only physician that we consulted with. And these were all, you know, integrative alternative medicine doctors. A couple of them were chiropractors. Most of them were MDs. She was the only one that said, look at the timeline on this. Look at the ingredients. These are the ingredients, the toxic ingredients that are in the HPV vaccination. She said this wasn't an accident. Could it be that your child is is one of the unfortunate percentage who may have suffered those health issues, possibly because of the vaccine or possibly not. But you can't then conclude from that that the vaccines are inherently unsafe. Okay, so the CDC itself has said that vaccines are inherently unsafe. And have they or are they suggesting that there's the possibility of a reaction? I mean, if you look around the world at the number of children and young young women, young men too, that have suffered health consequences from the HPV vaccine, just looking at the statistics, they're really significant. You know, it wasn't truly informed consent. I wasn't told about the risk factors. So to me, it's a risk benefit analysis. And everybody should have the right 
to do the research and make the choice for themselves. But just um, just to go back, just to, to go that, back to your your comment that it's it's a risk benefit analysis. Are you medically qualified? What does it mean if you or I, I'm not medically qualified either. What does it mean if you or I do the research? You're right. I'm not I'm not a scientist. I'm a parent. But there are physicians out there and scientists that have looked at the research and they report on them. And I'm sorry, but my physician, physicians don't look at the research. They listen to the CDC and they, they're trained to follow the CDC recommendations. But, but isn't that the CDC, that, I guess that's exactly my point, isn't that the CDC's job that they are trained to look at the research in the most serious way, in the most detailed way? We're delegating that responsibility to them simply because we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the ability to make well, those judgments ourselves. The big, that's the big mistake because there's corruption within the Center for Disease Control. They, the scientists there have vested interests. They own patents on vaccinations. So their own research has come under fire. Their own research showed that vaccines, the MMR vaccine, caused an increase in autism. And one of the scientists came forward and testified that the scientists changed the data. They basically manipulated the data to get rid of the correlation. And that's been hidden from the public. But then what do you do about taking ordinary medicines, uh, say, over-the-counter headache tablets or something, which obviously have been vetted by the CDC, have been recommended? Do you not trust those either? Where do you draw the line? Who do you trust? I trust in the end, what I've learned is to trust myself and to do my own research to answer that question. Some people might describe you as being part of a a subculture or a fringe group. How would you describe yourself and your views? And and how do you feel, uh, given that your your views are a minority view and the majority view is very much against you, the science is against you? Okay, I disagree that the science is against me. What I agree with is that the propaganda is against me. You know, pharmaceutical companies have a large control of the media. And so that's what people are being exposed to. Also, people are what I once was. They blindly trust their physicians. So I think it's sad that people aren't more informed. Michelle Goldstein. Now, there are some very serious claims there, which we need to address very specifically. But just before we do that, how typical is Michelle and her views of those who are against vaccinations? Anna? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the claims that she's making are pretty familiar to me. The idea that, you know, the CDC specifically can't be trusted, that uh, journalists are owned by the pharmaceutical industry. All that is pretty common um, in people that I've interviewed who are part of the anti-vaccine movement. The other important thing here, too, is that she believes that she saw something negative happened to her daughter's health as a result of a vaccine. A lot of parents have that story. And in a way, that sort of anecdotal evidence is very hard to counter, even when you do what you just did, which is point out that the science and the factual evidence are against them. Peter Hotez, we've already touched upon some of them, but this, there are some quite specific, serious claims that uh, Michelle makes. This allegation of corruption at the CDC, the idea that they own the patents on the vaccinations, what's the evidence to, to support that? Or is, it, is there a real fallacy there? 
Uh, I have no doubt that this woman's uh, daughter has Crohn's disease. What's clear is that there's no link between HPV vaccine and Crohn's disease, and there's not even any plausible mechanism. Uh, Regarding your specific question, the CDC conspiracy theory is a central tenet of the anti-vaccine lobby. If you know anything about a federal agency in terms of how it operates, even if they wanted to maintain a conspiracy, it would last all of a couple of hours or an afternoon at most. It's, it's simply not plausible. And there was also a suggestion that, that there isn't evidence that the vaccine against polio worked. Is there a specific lawsuit or something that has fueled this as an idea? Well, with polio, you know, I mean, I don't know what else could have caused the uh, eradication of polio. Uh, When I was trained as a pediatric house officer, as a resident in the 1980s, there was polio was endemic in 125 countries. Now we're down to two countries, and that's all because of a massive polio vaccination campaign. The mistrust of vaccines that we've been talking about may have existed among small numbers of people for years, but there was a specific event which gave it a much higher profile and I think affected parental behaviour. That was the Andrew Wakefield findings, alleged findings. Anna, very briefly, just remind us about what this was about. Yeah, I suspect that this is very familiar to a UK audience. But in 1998, Andrew Wakefield, who was then a gastroenterologist at the Royal Free Hospital in London, uh, was the lead author on a paper that suggested a link between the MMR vaccine and what he called uh, regressive autism, the development of regressive autism. And while the paper itself was extremely cautious, as it should have been, because it was only a study of 12 children, at a subsequent press conference, Andrew Wakefield made a number of really sweeping claims about the purported dangers of MMR and suggested that the MMR vaccine needed to be broken up into three shots. You know, the study was subsequently retracted and Wakefield's motivations for doing the study were subsequently called into question by a lot of investigative journalism. But uh, the damage was already done. The results of that study, that press conference, were that vaccination rates started to fall precipitously, first in the UK, then in the US, then across the world. So that study has been thoroughly discredited. But there are instances where governments and public health bodies have actually acted unethically. You know, you can understand why why this has sown the seeds of people's mistrust. There are some of these instances that are really shocking. Give us some examples from the United States, Anna. One of the most infamous was the Tuskegee experiments, where a number of black veterans who had syphilis were left untreated for decades, long after the government knew the cure for syphilis because government scientists wanted to study the progression of the disease. That, of course, had a disastrous effect on the health of these men, their families, their descendants. And so uh, things like that are frequently cited by anti-vaccination activists who say, you know, clearly the medical industry can't be trusted as a whole. Emily, according to this week's Welcome Global Monitor, that was this worldwide poll of more than 140,000 people, one in three French people think vaccines are unsafe. I think that's the world's highest rate. And nearly one in five believe they aren't effective, which is second only to Liberia. How has that happened in France? It comes back a little bit to what Anna was saying. So it has a lot to do with uh, the historical context and what has happened in the past. So if you look back at the situation in France, you can see that trust really slowly eroded over 10, 15 years. So 
And it comes back to a few key events that really made people mistrust the way health authorities were responding to certain health crises. So one of the first ones that started was the blood contamination scandal. Another one was uh, the way that uh, hepatitis B vaccination was discussed in the media and by the government. So many people at the time in the 1990s were worried in France that hepatitis B vaccination was causing multiple sclerosis. And multiple studies showed that there was no link between the two. They looked at particular the event and they found that there was no link with the vaccine. But somehow the lack of confidence and this concern remained in people's spirit. And then what happened afterwards, a few years later, you had the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. And that also created a lot of mistrust. The Asian flu. The Asian flu, exactly. Because the government, when this happened, was trying to be prepared. They didn't know the extent of you know the, the disease, how bad it could be. So they tried to vaccinate as many people as possible, which is common sense. Um, it turned out to be not as dangerous as we thought, which was a great thing, but that means that people started questioning the government's decision. And again, because of this whole built up of, of mistrust, they just wouldn't trust anything that would come from the government. And I think that's why we are in the situation now. So we've talked about general suspicion of the medical establishment and some real reasons why these seeds of doubt have been sown. But have the authorities also been guilty of complacency? Peter, should people like you perhaps have worked harder to try and uh, win back? public confidence. You make a very good point. And what we've seen is now that the vaccine misinformation empire has grown from a fringe movement uh, to what it is today, where it's very difficult for a parent to download meaningful healthcare information about vaccines. The other flip side of that is we've not had a very robust system of vaccine advocacy. So what's happened, which is an unfortunate situation, is that the defense of vaccines has fallen to a handful of individuals like myself and, and, and a couple of others. What happened was when this movement began, the thinking was it was a fringe movement and better off not confronting it at all because you'll only give it oxygen and amplify it. So the, I think there was a strategic decision not to engage. And that might have made sense for the first few years during the early 2000s. But they kept that stance. And in the meantime, the anti-vaccine movement grew and grew and grew. And there was still that limited uh, response. So the anti-vaccine movement was allowed to grow uh, largely unopposed. And uh, one another thought. Could it be that vaccine programs were a victim of their own success? Once the rates went up, no one thought there was really much need to keep promoting the benefits. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of research, including a recent UNICEF report that talks a little bit about complacency, especially in more developed countries, essentially that because we never saw the devastating effects of things like polio, uh, it was very hard to keep that in people's minds as reasons why they should be vaccinating against those those diseases. Um, one thing that I see a lot in the anti-vaccine movement is this belief, um, this claim that uh, diseases like measles are not very serious. That's something that I've heard repeated over and over. It is a really, really serious disease, especially for babies and immunocompromised people. But so many people making that claim haven't actually seen anyone with measles. They haven't been in the middle of a measles outbreak. And so there is this ability to make a claim like that, to say, well, you know, these diseases have been overblown. 
And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at doubts about vaccines. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. Our email address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Ritala Shah, looking at vaccine hesitancy and my guests. We're joined by Anna Merlin, senior reporter at Geo Media, Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and Emily Karafilakis, who's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Earlier in the programme, we heard from a mother who's opposed to vaccinations. We discussed where the seeds of those fears may have been sown. I want to talk now much more about the role of technology and politics in fueling those conflicting messages and what the medical establishment perhaps could do to push back against views which they say are putting lives at risk. This scepticism of vaccines has been around for as long as there have been vaccines, but what do you think is different now about the role of the internet and in particular social media, Emily? Well, the internet, and as you say, particularly social media, has really changed the way we communicate, we interact, we share information. So if you look at the way communication happens now, we have a public, including patients, that are a lot more engaged, that are a lot more empowered. They come with their own research, as we heard in the previous report, and they're a lot more engaged and informed. The problem is a lot of the information that they do find online is very often misinformation. Studies have shown that most of the information available at the moment on social media is negative, is against vaccination. One of the reasons why this is the case is because we as a scientific community have left a gap. You know, it, it is a new way of communicating. So people are worried of what will happen if we get negative comments, what will happen if, you know, how do we reply to certain questions? So it just has slowed down our use of, of these new technologies. And that means that certain people that have specific concerns or anti, more organised anti-vaccine groups have used that space to really share and spread their, their concerns. Anna, have you seen some good examples of how social media is, is spreading ideas? Yeah, though I would push back on the idea, obviously, that social media created the anti-vaccine movement because the anti-vaccine movement has literally existed since vaccines existed. It's existed for centuries. Uh, but what we do know is that what the what social media does, obviously, is allows people to spread ideas more easily. It allows sort of conspiratorial communities to find each other and fuse together. And so one thing that I've seen with the anti-vaccine movement is that it's sort of found its way to joining up with this kind of more squishy, generalized movement for natural health and wellness. So you can see anti-vaccine content shared on the same kind of Facebook pages, Instagram accounts, Pinterest pages that also share, you know, other supposed natural remedies for things like diabetes or cancer. You know, you find all this stuff kind of lumped together into the same generalized overarching theory that everything can be cured by a natural cure, essentially, is what I would say it is. The other thing that social media does is that it harnesses the power of 
anecdotal evidence. Whereas, you know, scientists are very careful in how they communicate and the claims that they make. These anti-vaccine pages are not. They make sweeping claims. And they also harness the power of things like, you know, videos of distraught parents saying that they believe that their children were harmed by vaccines. That is very distressing to watch. And for another parent sitting at home watching it on Facebook or YouTube, that's incredibly powerful. Peter, I'm going to fess up here. I would put myself among the ranks of the worried well, you know, middle class, educated, try to eat healthily, a lot of the things that Anna was just talking about. This sort of information, these ideas on the internet, they play to our fears and our anxieties. And isn't that actually to be expected? Well, it's it's even more than that. I mean, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about is the fact that the information that's now being put out there, the misinformation on Facebook and other sites is not random information. This is being organized by specific anti-vaccine groups who are monetizing uh, the Internet. Either so, through so you're saying there's and, financial gain there? Oh, there's no question. I mean, look, I mean, my book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, the good news is that it's one of the highest-ranked pro-vaccine books on Amazon. The bad news overall, it's ranked about 25 because Amazon is actively promoting a 24 phony anti-vaccine misinformation. Well, you say actively promoting. What do you mean by that? I mean, Amazon uh, aren't well, here to defend themselves, but what does that mean in your terms? Uh, well, they, they highlight them, they promote them. When you click on books on vaccination, that's what you get first and foremost. So, they're uh, And presumably they're doing that because those are the books they believe are selling. Presumably, you would have, you have to ask them, of course. But it's not just Amazon. It's the same with Facebook. You've got specific groups, each finding a different way to monetize the Internet, whether it's through selling advertising, through selling fake phony autism cures, terrible things like bleach uh, enemas. It's very concerning. And then, of course, you've got the political arm of this, which we can talk about in a bit. But the point is... We now have to figure out a way to put a halt to it, and we have to now figure out a way how to begin dismantling the anti-vaccine media empire and taking down some of the content. So it is easy to, to blame social media and the internet for everything, but is there a sort of a wider societal, political kind of uh, thing going on here, as you were alluding to, Peter? There is a sort of breakdown of trust in what we call the establishment. It's something that's been discussed a lot in political circles. We're questioning a lot more many of the institutions and people who we may really have implicitly trusted in the past. And in Italy in 2017, there was a measles outbreak and the government there brought in stricter measures uh, about vaccinating children. But that policy didn't change anything. This is Italy's former health minister, Beatrice Lorenzin. Despite our information campaigns, we weren't able to increase the level of vaccination. This was because of fake news and the alarming campaigns by the anti-vax movement. And they were supported by some political parties that now hold the majority in the Italian parliament. Emily, we talk a lot about France and Italy as European countries where there is vaccine hesitancy. It's on the rise. But these are also countries where there have been populist parties and movements which have grown in influence over the past few years. Is there a connection, do you think? So 
We're starting to look into this and a study has been published looking exactly at, at the link between populism and vaccine confidence. And they found that people that tend to vote for populist parties tend to have more negative sentiments towards vaccination, but also that populist parties themselves advertise more negative sentiments towards vaccination. This still needs to be confirmed. And I think it, we still need to have a lot of work to try to understand this better. But one of the reasons why this may be the case is because it's anti-establishment. It's putting the, the masses against the elite. So that's the whole talking point of populism. And it's what we find back in vaccination. It's putting the parents, you know, the, the masses, the population against the experts. The problem is that now people are more engaged and informed on social media. They get more information, what they believe is correct information. So they become their own expert. And we heard that in the report before. They trust themselves more than they trust experts. So that's where I think the, the discussion is very similar between populism and anti-vaccination sentiments. Uh, Peter, you talked about the role of politics in all of this. How do you see that playing out in the United States? So in the United States, it's a little more explicit. So we have obvious politicization of this issue. So what we have in the U.S., you know, vaccine policy is set at the state level and that individual states that make the decision on mandatory or compulsory vaccinations. And, if, and, and most of those states now have political action committees. Uh, these are anti-vaccine groups raising money for candidates to run on anti-vaccine platforms, lobbying the state legislature to each year make it more and more difficult to vaccinate our children, harder to vaccinate, easier to exempt them out of vaccinations. And so this is why we have these expanding pockets of unvaccinated children. And the terms they use are quite interesting. They use a lot of the populist language that we also see in Italy. They use these terms like medical freedom, choice. And in fact, the truth is children have a fundamental human right to be protected against serious or even deadly infections. And we're basically taking away the rights of children for this type of uh, phony rhetoric now being espoused by political action. And Anna, I think uh, President Trump has in the past met or had links to Andrew Wakefield. I think you've been away with big groups of people who are vaccine hesitant, anti-vaccination. Do you think that you can point to a range of political beliefs that perhaps those, those people would, will adhere to or do they come from all over the political spectrum? Oh, there are definitely a range of political beliefs. One thing that the anti-vaccine movement has done really successfully is tapped into both more left-leaning people who might have these kind of what I would say are kind of hippie-ish adjacent natural health views, and also the right wing who, as Peter said, are likely to utilize the language of choice, of medical freedom, the idea that vaccine mandates are a form of government overreach. So really, you know, the most common thread uniting all of them is fundamental distrust of the government and an idea that, you know, the government is not really looking after our health and that parents should have an individual choice about what they want to do with their children's vaccinations. So we've talked a lot about the problems, about the concerns, you know, what lies behind the concerns. Let's think a bit about solutions now. Pakistan's had some pretty serious problems with vaccinations, despite the fact that the welcome survey that we've been talking about showed it to be a country with a high level of trust in vaccinations. There are pockets of resistance and occasional attacks on health workers. In April this year, the Pakistani authorities were forced to suspend the anti-polio campaign after at least three polio workers and two police escorts were killed 
killed in a semi-autonomous region of the country. Now, bear in mind that Pakistan is one of just three countries, Afghanistan and possibly Nigeria, where polio is still endemic. And this year, Pakistan's already had 17 cases of polio paralysis, compared to only 12 in the whole of last year. Well, Baba bin Atta is leading the Pakistani Prime Minister's campaign to eradicate polio. He explained how they've begun to change their approach in the places where concerns about vaccinations are the highest. So my strategy is to convince parents would be based on a number that the data was telling me. The real thing that changed, and I always had this idea, that this term called community resistance is much bigger than what the data is telling us. So what happens in Peshawar is that there's a small school in the northern western province which used to resist polio vaccination in the past as well. They, they resist and then whatever drama that was staged there caused hysteria not only in Peshawar but the results were seen in Lahore and they were seen in Karachi and they were seen in all over the country which takes us to the point that at the rock bottom you have only one word. It's community resistance. You have to win parents over. You can't be using guns. You can't be registering police cases. So, so this just was describe the, the example. Previously, uh, the people would go into homes and ask questions that were perhaps quite intrusive. Now it's a more a, a, a lighter touch and certainly no threatening with prosecution or anything. Ritala, the best example that I can give you is from the ongoing campaign. For the first time, the government of Pakistan decided we will not be registering police cases against parents who resist vaccinations. Coercive measures using force is not the way forward. We have to win parents over. There were these intrusive questions which were data-driven. We would want to know a percentage of children which will be newborn for the next campaign. So the only way to ask that question is to look for pregnant ladies or uh, how many couples there were in a, in a household. The issue is that if you see at this question being repeatedly asked after an interval of 40 to 50 days, from the perspective of a mother in a conservative society like Pakistan, they're considered very private, intrusive questions. Why would you want to know if a lady is pregnant in the house? So the one big change that we brought is that now there are only three questions. The first question is how many children under the age of five are there? And the next is then for internal is that how many were vaccinated? And if the parent says the child is not home or we refuse, we just ask for a simple reason. And if they give us a reason, well and good. If they don't give us a reason, we just mark them as a straightforward refusal and we walk out from that. We reduce the number of door knocks from seven to two. What is door knock? Door knock is that a house in core reservoir is visited on an average six to seven times. So this crazy door knocks which was resulting in so much questions in, in communities' heads. You know, why the hell do we need to cross-check each and everything so many times? Now we have just brought it down to two. Only the polio team would visit and then the supervisor would visit. And if we have some doubts over the vaccination status of that house, a third monitoring team would visit and that should be the end of it. And yes, while I was there, we did do an estimate of what is the total number of a hike in refusals that we may be expecting from the areas. I am pretty surprised. I was expecting the refusals will go up to 60,000, 70,000. They are much, much, much less than that as of now. Babar bin Atta in Pakistan. So they are taking what they see as being a lighter touch approach, but there is clearly quite a lot of pressure on parents to get their children vaccinated. Emily, is there a case for forcing parents to do so? 
I think, first of all, this is a really great example of a strategy where we're putting the community at the heart of the whole work around rebuilding trust. Because if we don't do that, then we're missing the point. And certain countries have decided to use more mandatory vaccination and and enforcement and these type of, of strategies. I think they may work in certain contexts, but they won't everywhere. And what we need to be careful. Why, why not? Why don't Why don't think so? For instance, Australia, I think vaccination is linked to welfare programs. In the United States, you have to have vaccinations to go to school in certain states because every population is different, and that's why we're finding that people have different concerns about vaccination. Although we find some of you know some commonalities, but people have different concerns around vaccination, and they should be addressed to make sure that we look at these specific concerns that they have in each country. So, in certain countries, it's more an incentive to get parent to vaccinate and that worked really well. But what what's key is if a country decides to enforce mandatory vaccination, it certainly shouldn't be used as a magic bullet that will solve the problem of vaccine hesitancy because it isn't. This will help with diseases like measles where you need to get a really high coverage rate to stop the disease from spreading in the community, but it won't help with hesitancy and confidence. And if you do decide to have a a mandatory vaccination program, it has to come with proper communication and most importantly, proper engagement of the population to make sure that they're on board. Peter, on the question of exemptions, I think that a number of US states allow exemptions, but would you like them all abolished or are there some people who absolutely should be allowed exemptions for religious reasons, say? What we did was in 2018, we published in the Public Library of Science a study looking at the 18 U.S. states that allow non-medical exemptions for reasons of personal or philosophical belief. And we identified within those 18 states 15 urban hotspots where large numbers of kids are not getting vaccinated. And then a year later in 2019, we've had measles in seven of those 15. So we wound up making a pretty good measles prediction map. So the lesson learned is that we have to close those non-medical exemptions exemptions in the states that allow them for personal or philosophical belief reasons. That's That's got to happen. Uh, the only problem there is you won't win hearts and minds by that political policy Which step. was the point that Emily was just making. So that's why you have to do in parallel this dismantling of the anti-vaccine media empire. Uh, if you don't do that at the same time, I think you'll, you'll limit the effectiveness of closing non-medical exemptions. And then their third piece to this solution is we need to build a more robust system of pro-vaccine advocacy in the United States. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. But but Anna, I mean, why not perhaps penalise parents? If we think it's as serious as I think all three of you agree it is, why not penalise parents who won't get their children vaccinated in some kind of way? I think in New York City, where there's a, a measles outbreak, that the parents have been fined. And we are in the process of seeing whether or not that is going to work. I mean, personally, just anecdotally, I I don't necessarily think that it's going to because as both Peter and Emily have pointed out, it doesn't win hearts and minds. It doesn't make people feel any better about vaccinating. It doesn't take away their concerns. It just adds to their sense that they are being, you know, oppressed by an overreaching federal or state or city government system. What I would really like to see is a program that helps people regain their trust, both in public health officials and in their doctors. I mean, really, a lot of this would be a moot point if people had more trust in their pediatricians and their family physicians than they do in Facebook pages, celebrity doctors, other sort of broader cultural influences that don't have their best interests at heart. Well, it is one answer to that. Put the doctor on Facebook. 
I mean, I think anything that allows people to have more access to their physicians and feel like they have as much time as they need to get their questions answered in a non-judgmental way would be helpful. I was just at an anti-vaccine conference, and one of the things I saw there that is pretty alarming to me is that these people have a lot of time with purported anti-vaccine experts who are giving them really, really bad information, but they're spending a lot of time doing it. They're spending a lot of time face-to-face with these people, certainly more than they probably get in an average doctor visit. Uh, Peter, I think uh, you've been trying to get on social media and f- and fight back from that particular platform. How is it a difficult place to operate in as a, as a scientist, as a as a medical doctor? Well, you know, with a, a highly emotionally charged issue like uh, vaccinations, it, it certainly is. But if, uh, here I am, a vaccine scientist, a pediatrician, and the parent of an adult daughter with autism. My thinking was, if I don't do it, then then mm. who will? And um, and it's come at a heavy price. Uh, but I still think it's important that the scientific and medical community speak out because the general public is only hearing from the anti-vaccine lobby. Look what happened in New York. I mean, it's an example of deliberate predatory behavior by the anti-vaccine movement. They descended on the Orthodox Jewish community. They filled them with phony pamphlets. They held town hall meetings. They uh, held robocalls, teleconferences. This is an example of specific predation, which has become the new world order of the anti-vaccine movement. They did this with the Somali immigrant community in 2017. Now they're doing it again. So they're, in a sense, deliberately engineering declines in vaccine coverage and measles outbreaks. What about, though, then, Facebook, Pinterest, Amazon, they all say they're going to take steps to kind of stop content like this appearing on their pages, on their platforms. Is that helpful, Peter? They've not really done that. They've done the minimum possible to show some level of corporate social responsibility. They've done the minimum they can for purposes of optics. They've not made a good faith effort to really take down the anti-vaccine content. In the case of Pinterest, yes, they did that, but then they took down the pro-vaccine content which sent a very chilling message that it's all very equivalent. Not much support there for for the the social media platforms. about you, Emily? Where do you stand on this? Well, we have to be very careful. The strategy that they have to just remove any content that is anti-vaccine, it is a difficult one because not everyone should be put in the same in the same bag. So we do have these anti-vaccine groups and usually it's a small number of people with a really, really strong voice. But the majority of people that we're actually interested in are parents, like any, any parent in the population that just has question. They want to do what's best for their children. They just don't know how to do this. So they want to find out whether vaccination is the response or whether not vaccinating is is the response. These are the people that we want to look out for. And the problem if we start just removing anything that is against vaccination online is that we're going to stop people from asking very honest questions as well. And we don't want that. If we start just blocking everything, we're going to create even more mistrust. Anna, if you have confidence in the evidence, then there has to be some space for doubts to surface. And also it's important that people can express their doubts. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there is always going to be some level of an anti-vaccine movement the same way that there is always some level of every sort of conspiratorial movement. Uh, It's just a part of free and open discourse. The question is, how do we get it down to a level that it is manageable and it's not impacting public health? One thing that I've seen, just to add to the discussion of social media, is that a lot of, you know, anti-vaccine content is moving from public pages to private groups. That really is what's happening. And so that makes it even less easy to track what is being said, the claims are being made, and you know how information is being shared. So one final thought then from each of you, is it possible to allay this mistrust of vaccinations? I mean, how deep are its roots? And can it be contained? Or do you think it hints at something much wider? Anna? I mean, I am probably more pessimistic than maybe I should be because the people that I frequently spend time around are in the very sort of deep end of the anti-vaccination pool. One point that I would make is that one of the primary things driving the anti-vaccination movement in the United States still is a belief, an erroneous belief that vaccines cause autism. That is not true, but it has been very persuasive and very effective. And one of the reasons why it's so effective is because the true causes of autism are still a mystery. And so one thing that we can do to at least lessen the grip that the anti-vaccination movement has is to provide real answers for parents who are looking for them so that they don't fall into the arms of frauds and quacks. The other thing we can do, and I think Peter has ably pointed this out, is we want to talk a little bit about the financial motivations of people who are promoting misinformation and the ways that they personally benefit from it, because I think that that can be persuasive where nothing else is. Peter, would you agree? Uh, Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because in addition to providing the evidence showing there's no link between vaccines and autism, I point out what autism is, how we have identified more than 99 genes all involved in early fetal brain development. The point is autism is a series of events that begins in pregnancy well before kids ever uh, see vaccines. And that's a counter narrative that we don't we don't see too often. And I think that's the counter narrative we have to put out there, not only saying vaccines don't cause autism, but also explaining what autism is. One of the problems is it's a bit of a, a whack-a-mole game where you knock something down and the anti-vaccine lobby pops something up. Now, in some cases, they're even shifting away from autism, claiming vaccines cause autoimmune disease or they're claiming it's causing teenage depression and suicide. So you always have to be ahead of the curve. Emily, do you think this mistrust potentially hints at something much wider and deeper than just a concern about vaccinations? Certainly. First of all, trust is something that can be lost in a few seconds. It takes one tweet, one YouTube video for trust to be lost, but it takes years and years of work to be rebuilt. And we've seen this with MMR and autism in the UK. It took many years for coverage to come back to to what it was before the crisis. So there's a lot more. And and Peter and Anna have mentioned some of the things that we can do. But we also need to look at this mistrust and vaccination from a broader perspective. So look at it from a trust in science perspective, trust in government, trust in health authorities, and address those issues as well. Well, some fascinating thoughts there. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you very much to our guests, Emily Karafilakis, Dr. Peter Hotez and Anna Merlin. And do get in touch. Email us therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me and the whole team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.